beautiful evening in May. The moon had just come into view from behind the skyline as my sisters and I had just returned from a long walk to sit on the veranda and drink fruit juice. We could feel a gentle breeze laden with soft fragrances blowing over our faces. It was very pleasant and relaxing. At 7pm, we went into the dining room to join our parents and brothers for dinner. Mother was not there. Not feeling well, she had gone to bed. After dinner, while we were playing card games, Lee Yama, a Korean, working as a junior partner in the Japanese firm, came to visit. We were surprised that he had come alone. Because he and Kamiai-san, his senior partner, had always come together. Where is Kamiai-san? Audrey inquired. He told us that Kamiai-san had a lot of work and had stayed at the office to finish it. There was something about his expression that was not very convincing, but at the same time, we did not attach too much importance to it. Having found out that mother was not well, Liyama asked father whether he could go in and see her. Of course, father replied and let him into the bedroom. This was not unusual. One of the company's personnel had often visited and examined us when we were ill. These were not trained medical doctors, but they had enough knowledge to diagnose common illnesses and to prescribe appropriate medications. We children continued playing games until we were bored by them, and it was nearly bedtime. It seemed that hours had gone by and Liyama was still talking to my parents. We became uneasy and sensed that whatever they were discussing was very serious and important. What can they be talking about? Audrey wondered, putting into words the thoughts of the rest of us. The inner lounge adjoined our parents' bedroom. Desmond, cheeky as ever, walked to the door to eavesdrop. Jean rushed to join him, but announced that she could not hear a thing and they both soon give up. When Lee Yama finally came out of the bedroom, his expression was so grim that we were not sure whether we should speak to him. However, he did not wish us sayonara before he left. Mother and father remained in the bedroom and we did not see them until the following morning. The next morning we were still in bed when Desmond bounced into our bedrooms and pulled off our blankets. Get up, you lazy bones. Mother and father want to see all of us. Why do they want to see us? I asked. I don't know. Hurry up. He pulled me out of bed. We hurriedly washed and dressed and assembled in the front lounge where my parents were waiting. Mother looked lovely but worried and tired. Father was quite composed, but he too looked tired. When we were all seated, father rubbed his hands, 
something he usually did when he was about to introduce a serious topic. He told us that the previous evening, Liyama had come not on a social visit, but to warn us of immediate developments in the Lokshout state. The Japanese were losing the war, and the Americans were speedily advancing into several parts of the Shan state. They had taken Laika, an adjoining state not of Lokshout, and with the help of the Kachins and Karens, had set up an army base camp. Lokshout would probably become a major battleground between the above combined forces and the Japanese soldiers. Liyama had advised that mother, we children, and other women relatives should leave Lokshout immediately and travel north south of Laika. What about you, father? Are you not coming with us? I interrupted. Mother tried to reassure us by explaining that he and Uncle Chaumund would catch up with us as soon as they could. For them to leave at that time would be too risky. Father's absence might cause the Japanese soldiers to become suspicious of our plan. As we were to leave that night, Mother had instructed us to go and pack our cases, taking with us only the essential things and our everyday clothing. Too shocked for further questions, silently and obediently, we went into our bedrooms to begin packing. I remember sitting on my bed and wondering where this escape would take us. Would we ever see our home again? After dealing with us, Mother's next concern was the welfare of other people. She was worried about a group of boys and girls from nearby villages who were living with us at their parents' request. This was to enable them to learn needlework, knitting and other domestic crafts in the girls' case and office skills for the boys and to broaden their experience generally by living in a town. They had been with us for some time and repaid our parents by doing odd jobs around the estate. Mother realized that it would not be possible to take them with us, explain the change in our circumstances and its effect on them as gently as she could. She tried to cheer them up with the promise that they could return after the war, but it did not comfort them, and they left the room with very downcast faces. The servants were given a choice when Mother had explained the circumstances to them and many of the young ones decided to throw in their lot with us. Ayi refused to leave his hut, but promised that he would guard and look after our property till we returned. Our cook Mangpu wanted to stay behind to be with his wife and children. In the meantime, Father had gone to Holang to see Grandmother and other relatives to inform them that what was going on and to inquire whether they would like to leave with us. If they wished to do so, they would have to be quick and get their packing done for the night. He gave them full instruction of the procedure they would have to follow. Our cases and beddings were packed, and when evening had arrived, the men slowly and quietly loaded them onto two lorries, completely camouflaged and hidden under the trees a few yards away from our house. 
Valuable things such as silverware, rolls of carpets, souvenirs, and photo albums were taken to Holong to be stored in large wooden boxes. Time for departure was drawing close. We were like zombies, walking about aimlessly, just waiting. We had an early dinner and our final preparations consisted of everything wearing all and dark-coloured clothes so that we would not be easily recognised. At midnight, when the whole town was asleep, we bade farewell to Father and Uncle Chaumung. Sadly and quietly, we slipped out of the house and walked to the hidden lorries. Father and Uncle did not come to see us off. They thought it would be safer not to do so. In addition to Mother and the five of us, our crowd consisted of Grandmother, Sao Seimya, and her baby, a grand-aunt, Nan Lao, Grandfather's youngest wife, Nami, and a few servants. The engine of the lorries roared, and gradually we went further and further away from home, bumping up and down the Loksalt Mangpan Road. It was already long past our bedtime and soon we were fast asleep. Mother's plan was that we would stop at a house in Mangpain, a large village in our state, 20 miles from the town. She had hoped that before we had to travel further, father and uncle would have joined us. Dawn was breaking and we approached the village. We saw thick black smoke rising, as if something had been burning fiercely. We drove on into the village, where some people were waiting for us. Amongst them was the village hatman, who greeted us with the bad news, that our house had been burnt to the ground. A group of Japanese soldiers had been in the village the previous night and had set fire to a house. We had no idea whether Japanese soldiers knew of our plan or whether... Knowing that they were losing the war, and in desperation, they had set off a path of random destruction. Mother and the headman had a discussion. They agreed that Mangpang was no longer a safe place and that we should travel further. A few miles away from the village was a stony cave, and Mother decided that we would camp there until Father and Uncle joined us. The cave had a white opening shape, like an arch which looked as if it had been artistically carved. It was quite light and big enough to let air into the interior, where we found an area which was quite roomy and high enough for us to make it into a living area. The men immediately got to work and erected bamboo stages to give us some area to sit and lay our mattresses. Two lines of roads were fixed to the walls of the cave at the upper and lower ends of the mattresses so that we could put up mosquito nets. It had been about 4pm when we had arrived at the cave and we had not yet any lunch. Our stomachs rumbled with hunger. We ate cold minced meat and cow lamb. Cow lamb is rice cooked in the hollow space of bamboo sticks two and a half feet long and one and a half to two and a half inches in diameter. The sticks were filled with rice and water and that placed vertically near a roaring fire and turned at intervals so that the rice would be evenly cooked. When the rice had cooked, the outer layer of the bamboo was peeled off with a knife, leaving only a thin layer next to the cooked rice. 
This layer could then be peeled off easily by hand. Faithful Ayi had prepared all this for us. Before we could begin cooking meals, we had to have water. One of the men went to explore, and on a hilltop he found a hermit who was willing to let us draw water from his well. The village headman had lent us a huge water barrel mounted on a bullock-drawn cart. The hill was steep, and on the first occasion, the bullocks had to be corks to climb. The water drawn from the well and transferred into the barrel became our source of water for cooking, washing, and drinking. It was nine o'clock that night before we had dinner and we were too tired to enjoy the food. All we wanted was to get to into bed, have a good night's sleep. The following morning I awoke feeling very confused and it took me some time before I realized that we were in a cave. Sunlight was shining through the opening and by the time I was fully awake, it was 8 o'clock. I jumped out of the bed and waited for my turn to have a wash in a nearby bamboo hut. ลองอันนี้ในกลางรถเฮาเลยสีกันกอดมาพลาลงเฮาสั่งสอนไว้เมืองคนในพ่อเคยกัดเย็นเจอเฮาลดกลางพี่กิเลสาลงลับสี